Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning, church. Feels so great today. Oh man, <clears throat> how are we doing? We ready? <laughs> so um, today we're going to be in in John chapter twelve again, and so we'll get through more of John chapter twelve. It's a pretty long chapter, um, but we'll start in, in verse twelve. So if, if you're not sure where we were, you can go ahead and look that up. Um, so I wanted to start with a question for us this morning, and that is, what happens when our expectations are not met? What happens when our expectations are not met? We're going to see this a lot this morning. Um, let's say you have a job, though. Let's say you have an expectation of this job. Uh, you get it. It's supposed to be awesome, but it's not. And so um, I, I think in most cases, if we can we leave that job. And so we live in a world today, especially in our country, I don't know if this is worldwide, but uh, people go from job to job right, very quickly. People go career to career, job to job, um, and never really asking themselves, considering maybe the problem is my expectations and not the job. Like maybe it's something within myself. Maybe not every job is horrible. Maybe if I change something about my, myself, then these jobs will seem awesome and I'll be able to stay at them. This is kind of a similar situation we find in John 12 where people have this expectation of Jesus, huge expectations of Jesus. And we're going to see Jesus by his actions and his words are going to shut them down and say, wrong expectation. You guys we're not expecting the same things to happen here. And not only that, but he expects that they would change their expectations because he, he tells them by, by, by his actions and by his words, mm, you guys need to change this up a little bit to figure this out. And when you do, you'll experience something beyond your expectations. You will have joy, peace, eternity, even the honor of the Father if you would just do that. And so today our sermon is called The Laying Down and Lifting Up of Palms. So let me pray for us before we get going. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Um, thank you for Jesus. Lord, thank you for uh, uh, his, his life, which fulfilled so many uh, scriptures, over 300, Lord, prophecies fulfilled in Christ, such as uh, we will see a few of those today. Um, it is amazing. And I ask for, for those of us here, Lord, that we would not have ex incorrect expectations of our Lord, but, but, but know him, who he is, and what he desires, and that our desires would align so that we wouldn't be let down. Because that's the only thing that could let us down is not Christ, but our own misunderstandings. And so give us wisdom this morning, Lord, as we lift up the name of Jesus, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first point I want to make today is that we need to lay down the palm. Lay down the palm. And so we're going to look at verses 12 through 19 to start. 
The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and what had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So big chunk of scripture we just read. Um, So what's happening here? So let's spend a couple minutes. A lot of stuff happening. Let's look at what's happening. First off, it's the Passover. Or in a week, it's going to be the Passover. It may as well be the Passover because there's upwards, over 2 million Jews extra are coming in to Jerusalem at this time. So it's chaotic, even though Passover is a week away. A lot of Jews here. In fact, if you were Jewish, you had to come to the central temple. You had to come celebrate Passover. Not all throughout history that wasn't the case, but in this case, you absolutely have to come. And according to uh, Josephus, a Jewish historian, um, he said at his time, about AD 64-ish, that it was about 3 million Jews. So it's probably about the same thing here. 3 million Jews in this one little city. A lot of people. So what is happening here with these people? Well, there's a red carpet. There's a red carpet for the hero. And we see this. And so the expectation of this crowd is that Jesus is coming as the Rome destroyer, the Rome conqueror. He's just going to annihilate that Roman authority. And as such, he needs to be welcomed as king. He needs to be welcomed as political hero, as military hero, all in one. And so that's what they're doing. Like they're they're going out. So not even waiting for Jesus to make an entrance. It says they go out to him. Like they they can't be more excited about this event. Much palm, pomp and circumstance. And we see this in in the singing and the actions that anticipate Jesus coming into town. And they are looking for this victorious, like victorious giant war horse to come into town. And so what else is happening here? Well, the disciples don't know. And I love, love this, right? Just um, the honesty of this in verse 16, it says the disciples were like, we have no idea what's happening. We have no idea what's going on. Why do I love this? Well, first off, I think this is one of those proofs that the Bible is true. If you were somebody Uh, who was propagating or lying to gain followers, and you're like, hey, follow us, you would not write, we have no idea what's happening, right? And so the honesty of this, right? They're just just telling it like it is. They they figured it out afterwards, which um, leads to the fact that I love that it's okay to not get it. It's okay to not get it at first. And so mind you, if you're coming to church every week and you hear something new, right, that's okay, Maybe you're going to community group or going through men's study, and you're learning stuff you didn't know. Maybe something you knew was wrong, like you got it completely wrong, or maybe for the first time you see how things connect. 
That's a, not, not only is that okay, that's great. That is a win. That is awesome. And so if the disciples don't get it at first, certainly, church, we can show ourselves some grace, right? And so just as long as you're teachable, if you remain teachable, you will gain that knowledge at some point. And so what we see here with the disciples, not knowing what's happening, uh, they're probably very, very confused about the fact that there is singing we don't know how many of the three million Jews are singing, but even think just 10% of that would be insane. Insanely loud, you know, maybe even obnoxious to an extent. And they're singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And this word, Hosanna, right, it's a great word. I mean, it's like a prayer. It's a, it's a proclamation Right? It's saying, God save us, or, or Lord save us, so some combination of that, calling out to the Lord for salvation. Um, it's a great prayer. It's a great song. The problem is, the people singing it have a very short-sighted prayer. <laughs> they do not have high expectations. And so when they are singing, save us, Lord, of course, their context is Rome. When they say, save us, Lord, it's like, save us from Rome. And we see this in the fact that they say, uh, um, even the king of Israel, their interest is regional, national, and political. They are not thinking cosmic. They are not thinking salvation for the world. I mean, they are thinking about their, their life in that moment. Moreover, we see this in the fact that they are laying down palm branches. So verse 13 says, they took palm branches ran out to get ahead of Jesus and meet him and lay down these palm branches. Actually, it doesn't say lay down in this verse. In Matthew 21, 8, um, another account of this same event, it said, most of the crowd uh, spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And so we know from, from Matthew that they didn't just run out there holding the branches, they went and they spread them out on the ground. So what's up with palm branches then? What's going on with that? And so palm branches are a symbol. Right? They are a symbol of military conquest or victory. And so a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Judas Maccabees and his liberating of the temple a couple, a couple hundred years previous. Right? And so that, that's the origin of Hanukkah. And so when that happened, when they welcomed him and his troop back into town, they did that by laying down palm branches. And in fact, in the military victories after that, including the second conquest, second Maccabean conquest, they do the same thing. So it's synonymous with celebrating military victory. In fact, even on some of their coins, they have palm branches on them to celebrate military victory and conquest. Which means, and maybe this is controversial for some of you, this is a wrongly used symbol. This is a wrongly used symbol in this context. And there's two reasons we're going to see for this. One is the response of Jesus, and two is the expectations of the people laying down the branches. And so first we see the response of Jesus. And we see this in, in this expectation. And so, again, notice this is a response. So these people come out to Jesus first, sequentially, and lay all these things on the ground. And so they're sort of playing their card, their hand, and saying, this is what we expect. 
look what we did for you. We made you the, the red carpet, right? You know, our green carpet of palm branches. And so now you do your thing. Now you come march in, and now you come be our military hero and king. And yet, it says in verses 14 and 15, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And so the motivation of Jesus is not to adhere to the crowds whatsoever, huge crowd. It's to follow Scripture, right? We talked about that at Easter. Jesus, everything Jesus did had to be done a specific certain way. So he's ignoring the crowd. He's like, nope. And so why is Jesus looking for this little donkey? Well, Zechariah 9.9, which, which is what is referenced here. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fell of a donkey. And so this is a fulfillment of this verse. And so Jesus knows he has to fulfill this verse. So he doesn't, I don't, we don't know, maybe they had a horse for him. I'm guessing they probably had several horses as options to, to ride in on that were decorated. Uh, he doesn't want any part of that. He is coming to bring salvation, but, but strangely enough, I don't know, maybe more ironically, they don't, they don't want this salvation. It's too big for them. They just want little, little salvation for them. So how do we know that's what they wanted, though? Are we just assuming? Are we just thinking the worst of them? Well, no, because... Remember, back in chapter 6, the similar thing happens. They want to make Jesus king, and Jesus rejects their politics. Like, Don't get me involved in your politics. What happens? What happens to the people who were following him? They get upset. Right? They get upset. It said some of them lost hearts, and they leave. They just leave Jesus behind. They don't want any part to do with it. And so here we have, again, trying to usher Jesus to their throne, right? To the, to the smaller throne. And Jesus is going to reject, right? Their expectation and, and invitation into their politics. And what are they going to do? They're going to abandon him. And worse, a week later, they're going to kill him. Because he doesn't destroy Rome, they're going to turn him over to Rome and use Rome to kill him. Right? It's crazy. And so the problem with this crowd is that their words and their actions did not match. On the one hand, they could proclaim and pray and sing, Hosanna, save us, God, like, please come save us, with their mouth. And you could hear what they're saying, but their actions, what are they doing? They're putting palm branches down. So it's like, save us, God, but also we want the military guy. We want a king. And so they're sort of contradicting what they want by their words and by their actions. Short-sighted salvation because their expectations of Jesus were wrong. And because their expectations were wrong, they abandoned Jesus and they killed Jesus. And it's with this in mind that I believe that we, church, need to lay down our palms Lay down our palms. Not in the sense of like many churches, um, even ones that I've been a part of where you actually go get palm branches and you bring them in the service and you wave them 
and lay them down. I'm not saying to do that. Like, I'm not saying literally we need to do that. I don't even know how we would do that. But lay down those expectations, right? The palms for this crowd represented the expectations on Jesus. And so I want us to lay down these expectations on Jesus that are not correct. And so there are three parts to this. And the first is to lay down our political aspirations for Jesus. Because that is the immediate context of this text. And as we've seen multiple times already, including um, John 6, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time, we went through that. But Jesus doesn't want to be our political puppet, our mascot. Yes, we pray. Yes, we vote, right? We pray for this world, and we try to change this world as much as we can have a say in it by voting and whatever that looks like. We have to do that. But we can't confuse that with the kingship of Jesus over this universe. That's what this text is saying. It's so much bigger than these immediate politics. We can't confuse this with his headship over this church. And again, just to be clear, you can have both. You should have both, right? You should have both. You have your politics, right? You have, you have your faith. But they aren't exactly the same thing. Sometimes they fit together. Sometimes they work really well. But a lot of times, like in this case, they don't. But you need to have them both. Second, lay down our expectations of Jesus to do what we want when we want him to do it. And so we've seen in the book of John, person after person, leader after leader, stand before the glorious Son of God, and they don't get it, <laughs> or they reject him. Why? Because it's not what they were expecting, or it's not what they wanted. They reject God because their expectation isn't met. If we have expectations on Jesus that aren't who he is or what he desires, we will be let down. I promise you, we will be let down. In fact, I know a few people, a few people who, whose spouse left them at some point, and their response was to then leave Jesus, to then leave the faith. And so there was an implied expectation that Jesus never promised and so those events don't correlate. But if you have expectations that these things correlate together, well, then you leave the faith when things don't go your way. And there's many stories like this. Well, I didn't get fill in the blank, or I lost blank, and so I left the faith. Well, that, that's not how that works. You can't blame Jesus when your expectations aren't met, especially if the expectations aren't truly who, who Jesus is. And to fight this sort of thinking, and we need to, we need to, the third point, let our words match our actions. Right? Let's not be like these people here saying one thing and then doing another. Let us not sing about trusting the Lord or worshiping the Lord and then leaving here and then stressing about our life and our culture and, and the politics around us. Right? Let, let our words match our actions. Do we trust? Do we trust that God is God? Do we believe our own theology? When we sing the words, Christ is enough for me, right? Christ is enough for me, as we sang today, what is the action to that? Believe it, 
right? Believe it when we sing, Christ is enough for me. Believe that that is true. Who Jesus is is more than enough for us, church. Don't put expectations on Christ that are not biblical. It will only lead to your disappointment and worse, maybe even the abandoning of your faith. So let Christ be enough. The second thing I want us to see today is that we need to lay down our life. Lay down our life. So let's read um, verses uh, 20 through uh, 26. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Again, a lot going on. What is happening here? <clears throat> well, the Greeks show up. So um, if you've been reading through this, maybe like me and every other commentator in history, why are we talking about the Greeks showed up? It doesn't quite fit in or, or, or make sense. And by Greeks, um, it could mean some people say, well, they're just uh, Greek-speaking Jews, but I do believe that they are, are actual Greeks, you know, maybe even some who worship the God of Israel. Now, one thing about the Greeks that was true in this era, as you think of like old Greek, what do you think of? Like wisdom, right? Like guys in robes, thinking, overthinking everything, seeking out truth. And so that's what they did. And, and one of the things about them, they were known for being like uh, um, wanderers, you know, nomadic. And they would go as far as it took to find truth. And so, or to find the teacher, the teacher who has the most up-to-date truth. And so it's interesting here that at this point, you know, I, I think what, what John is communicating is that these, these people who always seek out truth at this point, they're coming to Jesus. Like his fame, his truth is spread, and now the Greeks have showed up and they want some truth for themselves. And so they are seeking to talk to Jesus. Um, they tell Philip, Philip tells Andrew, they both go talk to Jesus. And um, as I was talking to Daniel earlier, um, we don't know who Jesus is answering <laughs> when he answers here. It could, be, it could be Andrew, it could be Philip, it could be the Greeks, it could be all three of them. But the important thing is that he answers because, I mean, because this is awesome. And so we look at Jesus answering. And so we see this in verse 23, that it is the hour of glory for Jesus. Um, maybe an unusual response. It's the hour of glory. And so far throughout the book of John, every time something's about to happen or there's an expectation on Jesus, his response is, not yet, right? Not yet. Nope. Hold on. The hour hasn't come. The hour hasn't come. We're not there yet. And then, like, these people want to, these Greeks want to talk to Jesus, and his response is, well, I can't. My hour has come. 
And so like the whole priority shifts in Jesus' ministry. Everything shifts right here. Now the hour has come. And this hour um, is a week. So this hour of Jesus' life is actually a week long. In fact, nine chapters in the book of John, starting in chapter 12, cover this one week, or 40% of this book is the hour, the one week of Jesus' life. Now, one important thing to understand about this, about this hour of glory, is, is that it is not political and it is not military. So um, the crowd is not getting what they want. Instead, it is glory through death. Glory through death. The example Jesus gives is that of a grain of wheat. In verse 24, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So now, agriculturally speaking, and yes, I had to Google this. I know nothing about agriculture. But, you know, if you have like a good, a good seed... If it's actually you know, a good grain, you have a good seed, you plant it in the ground, right? you bury it. Um, it. It basically breaks open, I think like most other plants, breaks open, and there's the potential for millions of more seeds out of that one. Oops. And so Jesus compares himself to this seed to say, yeah, I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried, and because of my death, that's going to be my glory, because there's going to be much fruit. Millions of people are going to come to God through my death. It's not that it could or that people might come, but it's that his death will produce fruit. Fact. He knows it. That's, why, that's how he can get through all this. He knows he's going to save people through this. Again, it's not the potential to produce fruit. Right? This, this death wasn't to create an opportunity for some to be saved. It was to save people. In fact, this morning, you are part of that fruit. And so here we are, 2,000 years later, 7,501 miles from Jerusalem. And we are that fruit. You know? And there's no good numbers as far as the millions of people who have come to the faith. Much fruit, right? Just huge distance of time and miles. The fruit of the grain of wheat. Fruit only possible through the death of Jesus. A glory that's continuously manifesting itself. Every time somebody gets saved, more fruit. And then more people get saved through that person. It just keeps going and going. And so what should our response be to this one grain that gave us? this life. Well, we are to lay down this life. Lay down our life. Now, according to this passage, there's two parts to this. The first is losing and hating our life. Losing and hating our life. Man, that, that sounds rough. But, I mean, verse 25, it, it couldn't be clear. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world keeps it for eternal life. And so this doesn't mean like being, oh, I hate my life, right? Or, or just choosing to be depressed, right? Oh, this world. Um, it, it's not not liking your life. It's not tapping out of life. It's not not participating. It's not sitting out of life and doing nothing, 
It's also not losing your life like, oh, where did my life go, right? It's not being careless, right? That's not what it's talking about here. It means laying down your life, laying down your life, offering it up, laying down the love of it, the goals of it, the, the obsession and the clinging over it in an unhealthy way. And when we do this, it says we get something better, eternal life. More time and better. <laughs> but we have to let go of the temporal, right? We cling to the temporal. Everything that we could see and touch and smell, we cling to it as what's real. But we have to let it go, right? We have to lay it down. Not even just drop it, but just lay it down, lay it down and step away from it, right? We, we need to let this life go. And then when we do this, our whole lives become rearranged, right? Priorities become rearranged. And so what then happens is you come into opportunities, you encounter things in your life that are self-serving or selfish, then what happens? You hate them, right? You start hating the things that, that stop you from serving Jesus. You start hating the things about your life that, that ruin your life or ruin other people's lives or, or waste their time. You start hating these things. And I believe that's what it's saying here. It's not saying, like, hate yourself. It's like hate a version of yourself. There is a version of ourselves that we should hate, that we shouldn't ever seek out to be. And so this is a countercultural message, right? Oh, my goodness. And so... It's so interesting, um, Kevin DeYoung, I hope some of you know who Kevin DeYoung is, a, a theologian. Um, he did a commencement speech this week at Geneva College. It was absolutely wonderful, and um, he started it by saying this, I'd like to offer some different advice. Do not follow your dreams. Do not march to the beat of your own drummer. And whatever you do, esteemed class of 2022, do not be true to yourself. Well, why not? Well, for one, Proverbs 14, 12, um, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. Just because it feels good or you want to do it does not mean that it's something you should do. You know, in Genesis, you know, he points out that Esau did that. Anytime he wanted anything, he would do whatever it took to get whatever he wanted in that moment, and he messes up his life. He just gives up big opportunities in his life, tears apart his family, and it takes decades to repair because Esau just wanted to do what he wanted to do when he wanted to do it. He was being true to himself. In that same speech, the young um, mentions that he, that he was a, a father of nine, and yeah, <clears throat> and so part of that, um, if you've had kids, you know, you've seen all the kids' movies, right, whichever ones were popular during that time, and so he, he says, did you ever notice the difference between um, brave and, and turning red? And so he said in 10 years that he's had these kids, the cultural narrative during brave, when brave came out, said sacrifice, repent, Stop being that version of yourself that's destroying everything. Like, seriously, be responsible. 
the answer is, isn't everybody else changed? Change something within yourself. Give up a part of yourself to become the better version of yourself. Compared to, uh, I think last year, maybe it was this year, Turning Red comes out and says, whatever flaws you have, whatever mess you have, embrace it. Not only embrace it, force everybody else to embrace it as well. My panda, my mess, my choice, who cares about anything and certainly anybody else? And, and he's exactly right, right? This narrative has changed. Now, he, com- he ends this commencement by saying, the world says you must find yourself, be true to yourself, and above all, express yourself. Let me end with the words of Jesus who points out, who, who points out us in a different direction and gives us a much better way to live. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. God bless. And I do recommend going through that. It's such a wonderful speech. But then it begs the next question, because it sounds kind of passive so far. It's like, well, you know, you're, you're going to offer stuff up, you're going to lay stuff down, but then what? Right? So that's, that's one part of it, but what, what, what do you do in its place? And so second, we need to follow and serve Jesus. It says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And let me just say right off the bat, this is not a call for everybody to go into vocational ministry, right? He's not saying everybody lay down your life and go be a pastor somewhere. Not, not whatsoever. Whatever your skill might be, you know, politics, driving, you know, doctor, office, whatever, whatever it might be, uh, teaching, coaching, serve Jesus and follow Jesus, right? His teachings, be that light, wherever you are, right? Die to whatever the expectations are in that field. Like, don't aim to be the best in that field necessarily, but aim to be like the most Christ-like in that field. And Jesus says our reward is twofold. One, Jesus will be with us, awesome. And two, the Father will honor you. And what does that look like? I don't know, but I want it, right? I want the Father to honor me. I'm just going to assume that's a great thing. And so, therefore, because of this, it is critical for us to process our lives, right, through this lens of laying down our lives and looking at our lives and honestly saying, what should I hate? Right? It's a, which the world says, no, be yourself. No, look at yourself and ask yourself, what should I hate? Well, start with the sin, right? Find the sin in your life. Hate that sin in your life. Hate the wasting of time. Hate the missed opportunities to invest in people around you who desperately want you and need you. And then ask yourself, how how can you serve and follow Jesus in these areas? And if there isn't space to do that, go back to step one. Start hating Start hating the things in your life that are getting in the way of the, the things you know you should 
be doing to serve? Your motivation should be Jesus, should be eternal life, should be that honor of the Father. And you may say to yourself, well, that sounds super hard. (laughs) That sounds difficult. Yes, it usually is. Which just leads to our last point this morning. Lift your palms. Lift your palms. In verse 27 it says, Jesus speaking, Now is my soul troubled. Again, difficult and hard. Uh, What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. So what's going on here? Jesus is troubled. And so again, I hope that's encouraging and comforting to us who would look at these commands for us to hate our own life. And if Jesus is, is having a hard time with this, man, show yourself some grace when you feel nervous, scared, all these things. Yes, that's okay. It is okay. In fact, I, I agree with uh, those who would say the translation uh, here is better, a uh, better word is horror. Jesus is horrified at what, at, at what is about to happen at this hour. He knows in the next week he's going to be betrayed by somebody close to him. He is going to get beaten to a pulp. He is going to be murdered by the people he is trying to save. He is going to be lifted to heaven on a cross, only to be rejected by the Father by becoming our sin. And he's horrified by it. As I would be, as you would be. So this hour of Jesus, it's this glorious hour, it's not just about the glory of the cross, but really it's the glory of all of Jesus' suffering. He's talking about this whole week is going to be the longest, most suffering week ever. And yet he does it because there's glory in it. And he does it to glorify the name of the Father. And if you're asking yourself, well, what does God the Father think while all this is happening? Well, in, in verse 28, it says, Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it and said it had to be thunder. Others said an angel has spoke to him. And so God spoke and everybody heard. Do you guys catch that? you guys ever just read by that? Like, they all heard God. Like, these people have, have been given every sign teaching, warning, and now God the Father is like, yes, God the Father is agreeing with Jesus audibly, um, and, and people, it's so loud, they're saying it's thunder, right? They're looking up, is that, is that thunder? That was just, it was, you know, I think they were trying to cover the reality of the fact that they just heard God, because then some of them say, well, no, 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 it was an angel, it had to be an angel talking to him, as though, I don't know if that would be more comforting to me, to also hear an angel that sounds like thunder, And so there must have been much fear. And yet, people continue to argue with Jesus. They just keep, they get distracted for a minute and go right back into their expectations and they're arguing with Jesus. Now, maybe like you, you've heard me, uh, you've, you've heard people tell you, I would follow Jesus, I would follow God if I heard from God. If I heard God speak to me, then I'll follow well, what we see in this text is, no, 
Like these, these people heard, right? And so you have, you know, I don't know if all three million of them heard, but a lot, of, we can, a lot, much people heard the voice of God and did not follow. Instead, they follow through and kill the Son of God. And so I, I don't believe that excuse whatsoever. And it's the same way, though, if you think about it, um, the Bible today, when people read the Bible. And some people like me, you read the Bible, maybe like you. It's like, oh my gosh, this is the word of God. What must I do to be saved? Like, Hosanna, God save us. Jesus, please save me. I am a sinner. And then people read the Bible and they say, nonsense, incoherent, contradicting, right? I, I, I don't believe this. And it, it's the exact same voice. It's the exact same communication. But church, we are here because we have heard that cosmic holy voice, right? We, we, we've heard God speak through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the Bible, and through preaching. And for those of us who have heard, you know, we should lift up our palms, right? We should lift up our palms, right, to Jesus. We should lift up our palms for the one who was lifted up for us, right? We should lift up our palms because Jesus' palms were lifted pretty high up and nailed through, right? And so we should lift our palms, church, free, open palms, free of expectation. Opened, no expectation. Open palms, offering our life, giving up, laying down our life for the one who laid down his life for us, right? Lift our palms and sing, Hosanna. God, save us, right? God, save us. God, save Bakersfield. Let me pray for us. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.